0: There are many stories of consciousness, of faith, of societies, of families, of individuals. Out of the sea of the cosmos arises one dew drop, and that is you. From where do you come? Where are you at any moment in time and space? Where do you go? when your human incarnation is complete, when the cells of your body fall back into the forest floor of the earth, or the rocks above the tree line on a mountain, or the desert floor. Where do you go, you this dewdrop? So from the moment of your conception, and the moment of your birth, and every moment, in which you are this dewdrop breathing living you are part of an ocean your comfort as part of that ocean bespeaks the contentment of your heart and the light and illumination of god or Everything, or truth, taught, of what is real, that is your signature. I bow from that place within my own self as one dewdrop of that ocean of holiness. Or a secular reality to that dewdrop of you. And I do not leave the ocean for the dewdrop of yourself, and I do not leave the ocean for the dewdrop of myself, ever. Any breath. In this exists the humble human path. Who are you and who am I in that ocean? Anytime I try to reduce your identity to the color of your shirt, the age, oh, you're so old now, you've lost all your hair, or you're so young a baby, look at you with so little hair. The baby was born, look at that head of hair. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she ugly? Isn't he just awful? He's so stupid. Well, if she would only do this, through the screens, the opacities of neglect of the ocean, one is able to be home immediately, always everywhere. That is the one direction of your free will realized. My free will realized beside yours. Two dewdrops in the ocean. Such love. When we engage this together, it is my experience that the mystery of the ocean becomes our home. And that in that mystery... In you, the dewdrop, and in myself, the dewdrop, we have singular moments of grace or of reality experienced, called in many religions and forms of psychology and philosophy, consciousness. Oh, the dewdrop of the ocean exists in something we call consciousness. Consciousness. We could give many semantic names and concepts to this, but I'm just going to stay simple with words. I myself am quite simple in much of how I live. My own regard of myself would be like an earthly peasant walking in my bare feet. I'm in bare feet right now, sitting at my desk in the front room. And yet there's nobility or dignity. I am very devoted to the Self-respect of the dewdrop. You are and I am, and because I'm paying attention to the ocean. I'm sort of like the conductor tapping and raising the baton, as Fabio Luisi does. Here, he's from Italy. He's kind and deep man, a perfumer. A man of exquisite care. The musicians love him. They are unafraid of him. Sitting in an audience with him is like, ah, you, Maestro Luisi, the dewdrop you are evokes in the violinist and the cellist and me in the audience, the ocean, remember? Oh, the ocean, this moment. We in the audience together you with your orchestra of musicians who you've lovingly flown across the oceans of the world the physical water filled oceans of the world you've flown across from continent to continent to be with us what a gift may you be protected and blessed and safe and well in all ways always and everywhere and then My attention is in the direction beside Maestro Luizzi's attention. I've seen musicians in his presence turn before they commence a concerto at the piano or the violin. And the dewdrop of my soul is aware that they are completely unafraid When they are with him, there is such love. What word do we have for this relationship when we are together and there is adequate oneness that the mystery in the maestro and in the pianist or violinist and in oneself is safe? In each dewdrop and in the ocean, often your great souls turn to silence. Why? Because not only are they paying attention to the oceanic, not only are they paying attention to God or the divine or heaven or however we want to name it, They are paying attention to their experience as a human of that ocean. And they have the resonance of shared attention with two other people, the conductor, the individual musician. They also are paying attention to a collective realization or awareness and the next moment of consciousness might be a single note on the violin or the piano at the piano and everyone who hears that note and even a deaf person who feels the vibration in their fingertips resting on the armrest of their chair in the audience we know we are in the presence of life and that realization of our free will manifests as the human experience of the realization of the oceanic through you and through me is why we are here. Do not let anyone ever take your attention away from the greatness of the study of holiness. Whether you're studying it in a philosophical concept A spiritual practice, lighting a candle, saying a prayer you learned from an ancestor or have taught to a child. Do not let anyone take it away from you, hiking to the top of a mountain and camping or walking in the sand at a seashore and finding a beautiful discarded shell. You pick up that shell and hold it up in your fingers and another human being, if you chance to meet walking by one another on the beach, has received from you heaven, the cells of that person's body and yours, two dewdrops, together, and the mystery shared between you is your path, and the mystery of you having found the shell is your path. And the mystery of that human being walking by you to experience the intimacy of you finding the shell, that is that person's path. And all of us together hearing this and being with it realize, oh, we, humanity, one lake, one small sea like the Caspian Sea or the Salton Sea or Lake Superior or Kukul Lake, of my family, or the Blackfoot River of Norman McLean, who wrote the exquisite book, A River Runs Through It, or the Yukon, where I spent several summers of my youth, teaching a child to swim in the Yukon so that he or she or they might know how to live if they fell into water. That that dewdrop of that little boy in Nulato, Alaska, or that little girl in Chukitsik, Alaska, is still on the earth today, physically. That dewdrop, the other dewdrop, living far above the Arctic Circle. In the great mystery. If one lives from this place, one finds. Awakening in one's heart, a movement which causes no disturbance to the attention of other human beings in the ocean. That would be one's path. It is vulnerable. One can be touched. One can touch others. In it, there is no will to fall, no will to Compete, conquer, be conquer, no predator, no prey. There is the human being. When one is conceived and born, this is what is before one every moment of one's life. And then from within the heart and soul, within the body, one is receiving the question from that great ocean, and who are you? And how will you respond every moment in which you are alive? So I would like us to offer our attention to seeking that path and reflecting over the current mood of the world in these months, We're in the autumn of 2023 as we make this recording for this class. There's a great deal of dissonance and violence and argument in certain parts of the world. There's also the harvesting of the grapes and the autumn fruits of apples and pumpkins and root vegetables in the area of the world where I was conceived and born and raised. There's the preparation for winter in the very far north. Many things are being experienced upon this earth. How many of us are paying attention to that dewdrop? We truly are. And letting every decision of our lives and in all the places in which we have any authority as a companion to a spouse as a child to a parent as a sibling to another sibling as a parent, as a colleague, as a friend a grandparent, an elder we are responsible for our attention it is the one quality in my experience as a mystic we answer to at our death The soul goes on and the soul is still present and yet not in the incarnation. And the soul goes through what is called the bardos in Buddhism and there are ideas of it in uh, Christian and Jewish traditions. One goes through the gulf, one goes through purgatory or into heaven or hell or limbo. One goes into states of consciousness that people on the earth have historically tried to study and understand. And I experience these when I work with people who are dying or who have died or close ancestors of mine, friends, people I've loved deeply who have passed over or gone on. And my experience universally is the alignment of the attention of that soul. I might help a person who for three months after his or her or their death goes through the unnodding of neglect they caused, thinking they were doing the right thing, really impressing one of their children to go a certain way and realizing later, why didn't I just let them play the flute along with their work? They sort of even out where they thought, "Ah, we can't be too oceanic down here, it's just not safe. And I would say that being oceanic is the only safe experience there is. I spoke with John the other night about someone called the Panchen Lama in Tibet, one of the three main chairs in the Tibetan Buddhist pantheon. And how an incarnation of the Panchen Lama in the 20th century had tried to come into India. I've spoken of this many times in classes. He tried to come out of Tibet. He was being pursued for political reasons. People wanted some of the Tibetans and Chinese not to study the traditions spiritually and politically the Panchen Lama represented. So he was fleeing into Northern India. When he came into Northern India, he was given refuge from Tenzing Yasa, the current Dalai Lama, which is one of the other three positions in Tibetan Buddhism. And he was told if you would surrender authority to the position of the Dalai Lama, you could have refuge in India. And he said, I can't do that. I can't place the dewdrop I am beneath the dewdrop you are. I can be beside it, and so can the karmapa, the third of those three positions. But I, I can't surrender authority to you. And so he just turned around and went back to China and was put in prison. He was tortured, not aggressively, not terribly, but br- brutally enough that it was difficult And every few days to weeks to months, they would have to change guards because he was oceanic, he would not leave the dewdrop, and the guards would rather be fined, fired, shamed, than leave the dewdrop they were realizing was within each one of them. Finally, he was released from prison, and as I told John, he went back to his monastery and resolved the desecration of the monastery and the temple. And he openly wept and put back the stupa, the little temple that shows a model like the Buddha's enlightenment, the higher levels of the chakras and the parts of our human body and consciousness. He worked with others and put them back until the stupa was back to its blessed remembrance of the ocean of the dewdrop that was Gautama Buddha, or Buddha Siddhartha, his guru, his root teacher of 2,600 years ago. And then he had a heart attack at age 59 and died. What happened to that dewdrop? My experience is that he came back again and is here in the United States as a young man whom I've known since before he was conceived. Wonderful parents wonderful schooling, a very ordinary life, yet a dewdrop, I feel him all the time. He never leaves the ocean. He and I swim and collect seashells. What exquisite lives we have. We have difficulties when I have to walk out in the steps or the garage. I'm older now, I have to walk with a cane and be very careful not to fall. My body is very not well. I'm not dying actively. But I, like a great tree, am falling slowly to the desert floor. But the sap within my veins, the dewdrop of the tree I am, is unchanging. It is stable. It is real. It belongs to no one But the agency or seniority or intent, the signature of whatever, whoever this dewdrop is in the ocean of God, of the universe, of reality, of love. I don't think there's any force in the universe that would cause me to leave that home. And I hope that each person listening to this can rest within their own being to only give your attention to the dewdrop and the ocean. And then find out, who are you, you dewdrop, beside the Panchen Lama? Who are you, you dewdrop, beside Mount Everest? Who are you, you dewdrop, Beside the valley floor, beside the rhododendrons that bloom on the lower sides of Mount Everest in the late spring every year, beside the crepe myrtles that bloom here in Texas all through the summer every year. What flowers bloom where you are? What desert scapes, what coastal areas, what urban areas? No matter what the desolation of suffering anyone undergoes, the mystery is blooming. The very center of the dewdrop you have always been. You come from this, you are this, you will return to this. Right now, you must live within your incarnation, seeking this direction every moment. The discipline for this is taught in certain sacred practices, and it's called attention. Attention. The word attention comes from the Greek and Latin roots. It means to turn your direction purposefully in a certain way, a certain manner. So we say, I'm attending school. He's attending school. She's attending her work right now. She'll be back later. We use it in the military. Please stand at attention. Please bring the center of your awareness to the dewdrop and be awake. Be present. The root is from the same word that forms intent. Many people in metaphysical studies say, my intention is to do this, or this is what I intend. Contemporary psychology uses um, an idea of cognitive attention. One is using one's mind, one's mental awareness. What's important when you study spiritual attention is that you go beyond just the mind observing with judgment Attending from the dewdrop you are means letting go of judgment in order to seek responsibility. Being present with the dewdrop, bringing your attention to the reality of who you are, means letting go of your mental attention so that you are actually aware and alive. You are lovingly present. You are welcoming that in another human being so that your attention and theirs is meeting. What you give form to is something altogether different. Maestro Luizzi will be wearing his tails and a white bow tie and beautiful, stiff, lovely shirt and pocket handkerchief. And he's dressed as the conductor. A person in the audience might be dressed. I might wear a lovely simple dress and little flat shoes, carry a little handbag in my left hand and sit with my cane in my right hand. A person who's a chef might wear their outfit. Oh, you do drop. You're tonight, I see. The maestro is conducting. My uncle is farming, tilling the soil on this harvest day, plowing the corn underneath the ground at Hopi. We are all part of the same ocean. And when we respectfully bring our attention, the garb of our personality and our mind and our emotions is just like wearing a sweater or jumper, a scarf, trousers or a skirt if we are lucky enough, fortunate enough blessed enough to have clothing we have brothers and sisters persons out in the world who have no clothing who are homeless or are imprisoned or are being killed or tortured yet the dewdrop in each one of them is equal in dignity to the dewdrop of you and the dewdrop of me, no matter what we do to each other, and no matter what anyone else does to each of us. That place in us is not for sale, it doesn't belong to anyone else. It's you, it's me. It is our one home to care for. So in certain spiritual principles, we learn from whatever age we're present at when someone teaches us this, that we are to bring our second attention, our interior attention to the moment. We are to be awake, aware, alert, so that we are paying attention to the sea, the ocean, and to the dewdrop. who we are. And we learn to never leave that. And we learn to bring it to our first attention, what we're doing in our body. So I'll use a couple examples from childhood. I remember being seven years of age. I looked up the dates today to see when it was. I remember being aware I was probably five to nine years old. So I was seven. My parents were speaking of the friendship, the hoped-for friendship, in the relationship between the former Soviet Union and the United States of America. And Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union at that time, and Kennedy, who was the president of the United States at that time, were going to meet in um, several circumstances, but particularly in Vienna, Austria. And I remember my parents being excited. This was a doorway, they felt, for... What the modern world might do, and there was another circumstance, maybe six months prior to this, when Khrushchev had been in the United Nations, and a gentleman from the Philippines who was speaking uh, brought forward some statements of ideas he felt should be addressed in the world, and it upset Khrushchev, who uh, raised one of his hands and kind of made a very dramatic gesture. And then some people said that he had taken his shoe and kind of hit his shoe. And other people said, no, he took the shoe and hit it on a desk. So it still varies what people say was real. But the dewdrop drop of the gentleman from the Philippines and the gentleman from the USSR was in a disagreement. And it became a global headline. For me as a little girl, I remember hearing about it and my parents telling me, this was a very rude expression. It would be so wonderful if we could be in a more noble conversation about this between our two nations. So we sat to watch the news, and I remember sitting in a chair near my parents. They were sitting close to one another. And I was waiting for the relationship between the two two the two dewdrops of... Kennedy and Khrushchev, Khrushchev and Kennedy. And instead, there became a kind of argument. And I remember that I was humbled because they didn't respect one another. I realized they're not paying any attention to one another. Why aren't they paying attention to one another? And I was aware as a little girl, and seven is considered to be historically in most countries the age of reason when you start to think or somehow be granted from the ocean of the universe permission to contemplate what you'll do when you grow up. And so that evening in Corning, New York, I was aware they don't, listen to one another because each of them believes that the other one doesn't know anything. One of them is an atheist and believes that Kennedy is foolish as a Roman Catholic. One of them believes that Khrushchev is foolish, not sophisticated enough. From a country that is having trouble with adequate food supplies. So at this moment, when I was aware they could take care of each other and help each other, and the people of the USSR and the United States could live in the ocean together, and these two men could open the doors, and my little heart, that dewdrop, was right there ready. I was aware, oh, I, I need to study world religions and cultures and help humanity because... We can't get there that way. We'll just disagree until somebody picks up a weapon. And you know, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna pick up the weapon. Not this dewdrop, not that dewdrop. Not this dewdrop, not that dewdrop. This person, anywhere in the world, And that person anywhere in the world can be present in our consciousness at any moment. It's one of the gifts the young Panchen Lama and I share. We perceive and experience all kinds of people, yet we're very simple, humble human beings. We're just unafraid of the ocean. I am unafraid of what the ocean will do in the heart of a Palestinian boy if he would go to the dewdrop and let the ocean be his home within him, all around him. I'm present with what the dewdrop will do in a Ukrainian girl so that as she gathers water or firewood, other dewdrops in Israel or Russia are responsive to the ocean all around the dewdrop of each of those human beings. When this happens adequately, a critical mass occurs and one person simply goes forward with their attention in the inner realms. And they bring it into their human body, and they rise up. And in the next breath, they enact something of heaven on earth. And that gesture is oceanic. That breath is oceanic, yet humble and dignified. If that person died naturally in that moment, there would just be heaven on earth in that human being for the sake of all human beings who've ever been, who are, who will ever be, for the sake of all of life and all of creation. And that is who you are. This practice is not difficult. It just requires that you allow yourself to bring your attention to the space between heaven and earth within your heart and soul, and you embody that. And then as the mystery of life brings forward to you the next moment, you don't pick up anything harmful. You don't receive anything harmful. You don't enact anything harmful. You seek a gesture of the sacred, of the real. And as that dew drop, you embody that so that you, as the person you are, one human being, represent the whole ocean in your gesture, your bow tie, your blanket over yourself as a homeless man or woman your orphaned experience as a child, your luxurious experience as a child, your modest experience as a child. What happens in the next moment is you'll feel the quality of confidence or hesitation according to whether you have a little too much vanity or you're just right or you have a little too much Reaction against the blowback from people that go, you know like an old fairy tale, I'll puff and I'll puff and I'll blow that dewdrop down. There'll be the place where people don't necessarily want yet to go on and realize the ocean. they're too busy saying i'll oh, I'll own everything, or I'm such a victim i I have nothing. You wouldn't believe what he did to me, and so. The muscle of the soul and heart are developed by you realizing a noble posture, but not looking in the mirror, looking out at the ocean as if you were looking through a window of clear glass. You're looking everywhere for that ocean of God in the dewdrop of every human being And then in oneself, and in every human being, and in oneself, and in every human being, and in oneself. And then you'll find, oh, I was wearing that color to hide, or I wore that color to have too much bravado, not because I really like it, I actually like this color more. You risk the vulnerability so that you become like a stained glass window of transparent behavior, and then, with the places where people hit back in jealousy or suppression because they're still bullying too much or they're too aggressive or they're frightened to see the beauty of the dewdrop, they go, No, 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 not yet. You think, Well, yes, it's time. And then people can still hurt your feelings, no matter how conscious you are. But they can't change you living without violence from that dewdrop within your heart and soul. I thought of an example of that with uh, years ago, my my paternal grandmother gave me a beautiful small napkin ring when I was a young girl, and she hoped that I would have the good fortune to go to a fine women's college, which I actually had the privilege of doing on my father's very, very modest educator's salary. He was her only child, and I was her older of, of the two granddaughters, second of her four grandchildren, brother than brother, myself, than my sister and my younger brother. So Anna died when I was about 13 years old. And she gave me, in my, my mid childhood, a beautiful uh, carved napkin ring, carved of ivory, which at that time was not considered to be cruel. So it was very brittle. And she said, you don't have to use it, I just want you to have this. It represented a dream for her of how I might safely, lovingly come through my adolescent years into my adulthood with an education that might help me with a pathway in the world. She had put two of her three sisters through college herself, all of it. She did not attend college herself, but she sent her sisters Beatrice and Julia and so, when I went to college, I the first year kept the little napkin ring at my parents' home in a beautiful wooden secretary with glass doors, where we kept our fine china and things. And I thought the second year I'm going to take it because we actually used linen tablecloths and napkins um, at our at our dinners and our meals at dinner time. And there was a little cubby where each young woman had her napkin in the in the little cupboard coming into the dining room so they would use the same ones for three or four nights and then change them and so I tucked it in the back of my cuppy. and when I went to get my napkin out it was too fragile to use on the napkin so I I thought I'm just going to keep it there to to honor Anna this tall um, woman from a very elite family that was very sort of had a lot of bravado about being elite came in and she said, what is that? And I said, oh, it's a napkin ring my grandmother gave me. Oh, isn't that beautiful? How beautiful could I see it? And I hesitated to place it in her hand, but I did. And she dropped it on the floor. Oh, I'm sorry. And it shattered. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then she just turned and walked away. There's nothing that could touch the protective love of Anna, dewdrop to dewdrop in me. But that woman mm, could have easily killed me or if I'd had a baby, wished her baby would kill mine so she could have everything or just push me out of the way for a job or hit me. It was a willfully cruel act. A few of the other young women were sort of horrified. I went and gathered the pieces and apologized to my grandmother and said internally, my grandmother wasn't physically there, but said, Anna, Grandma, I'm so sorry. And you know, the blessing of the napkin ring has never left me. Where would it go? We can kill one another if we want to. We can cause great harm, rape, beating, with words, as much as with gestures. And this is really important for women because we've got a need now to mature in feminism into humanism rather than to use internal arguments that are violent and say, oh, he was so mean to me. And this is for the feminine side of men too when we say, oh, I hate that boss. Oh my God, not my mother-in-law, not my wife. Oh, what's she, what does she want now? When we leave the dewdrop and descend into armoring our causation and thoughts, that's a feminine fall like Eve. It's time to let that go now so that the receptive part of us is like my grandmother Anna. The active part of us is also like my grandmother Anna or the gestures in a noble man, Conductor Luisi with his baton, he usually doesn't use a physical baton. The baton he uses is his right hand, his fingers. It's something to behold. Then what happens is we are de-armoring ourselves. Oh, I thought it was okay for me to cause and think and sort of say brutal things and then sort of enact them. Instead, let your attention... Always be on the oceanic. Anna wanting all of the girls of the world to be educated, including her granddaughters. Her father teaching her, he wanted all the children of the world to be educated, including Anna's only son, my father. Then what happens is the oceanic becomes our safe home. Oh, the dewdrop within us is home, and it is home everywhere. And then one never leaves it. Where would you go? And then Khrushchev and Kennedy, wherever they are, are safely seeking the ocean because I love them. And I want them to know the ocean and to find home in it so that the people of Russia, all the various provinces and states and nations that were part of the earlier USSR. All the aspects of the United States find the oceanic conversation of loving relationship I was ready for at age seven. That was 63 years ago, not so long in human history. Yet I've never left that relationship with Khrushchev, his wife, like President Kennedy, his wife, their children, their grandchildren. As one of them walks on a seashore and finds a seashell, what might they know of the mystery so that every child on the earth might find the way home to the dewdrop they are in the ocean of heaven that is our home everywhere? Bring your attention to this, the dewdrop, and the ocean, your heart to mine.